For the past year, my sermons here have come almost exclusively from the Gospels. I decided as I began my ministry as the solo pastor of Christ's church to root my first year of preaching in the Gospels. We are beginning, we are in the beginning of a journey of faith together, and together we are following Jesus. So we have been sticking pretty closely to the stories of Jesus as he formed a community of faith. Today, we are taking a bold step outside of the Gospels, but not too far, as we turn to the book of Acts. While it's not one of the four Gospels, it was written by the author of a Gospel, Luke. We join the Apostle Peter, who is continuing the work of Jesus Christ. Peter had been traveling, sharing stories, sharing the Gospel of Jesus with his Jewish community. And then he had a dream. A dream which in today's text he recounts before a council of his fellow Jewish Christians, as he carefully explains what his dream led him to do and answer for the controversy controversy it has caused. Peter and his community are called circumcised believers because of the Jewish custom of male circumcision. Peter's dream leads him into an encounter with uncircumcised men, which means Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. What you will hear is a story of what happens when us and them collide. Listen again for the word of God. Now, the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, And it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And then everything was pulled up again to heaven. And at that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and to not not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will give you a message 
by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and just as it had on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So Peter is the disciple on which Jesus said he would build his church. So sturdy is Peter that Jesus called him the rock. He is the model of Christian leadership in the New Testament. For all Peter's strength, however, and responsibility, he faces a near impossible task at the beginning of this story. One of the most difficult things anyone can ever be asked to do. To convince someone to change their mind about something they feel very strongly. Now, you may say, that can't be so hard, but you would be wrong. When was the last time you changed your mind about something you felt very strongly about? When did someone talk you into believing that what you felt about some issue, some belief, some deeply held conviction was wrong and you changed your mind? It's a question that has occupied scientists and philosophers for as long as there have been scientists and philosophers. How does one change their mind? Study after study shows that even when presented with nearly irrefutable evidence, if someone really believes something, they may never change their mind. Take the role that humans play in climate change, for instance. Bill Nye, the science guy, whose uh, videos were a favorite in my elementary school, made headlines this week when he went on TV and quite passionately declared that by the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. Nye said, what I'm saying is the planet's on fire. Exasperated at the stubbornness of those who must act now to keep the Earth habitable for another generation, to save the plants and animals that are already suffering, Nye said, grow up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis. 
But regardless of the near unanimous consensus of the scientific community, declarations from the Pope, the actual documentable effects of climate change we are already experiencing. You see me sweat up here during the summer. It didn't used to be that way. So many people, including the President of the United States, will not accept the facts. And maybe it's a sticking point for some of you here. I'm sensitive to that. And if it is the case, just notice how talking about this makes you feel. And what would it take to change your mind? Could anything. And we all have convictions that we hold as strongly. That is what Peter faced when he was called before the council in Jerusalem. That is what Peter himself experienced when, in a dream, God asked him to eat foods that his strongly held religious convictions forbade. He had to change his mind. And then he had to change the minds of his friends. For Peter and his fellow Jewish Jesus followers, the laws that regulated a clean and holy life, which we find in Leviticus, they were not burdens. They were beloved convictions. Jews then and today follow the laws of God not only because God commanded it and it pleases God to show faith and trust, but also because following these laws orders their life. It's part of their identity. It sets them apart. It's a marker of who they are and whose they are. Think about the way that people feel about flags, the cross, the Bible, or even more basically, uh, how, how we might feel about a, a political party, a candidate, a sports team. These are all ways that we set ourselves apart from each other. Sure, some are silly, and sometimes they are detrimental in the way they tear us apart but some are deeply important to how we view ourselves and show what's important to us. For Peter and his fellow Jews, the law was something they loved, and it was one very key way that they showed their love and their devotion to God. So God's word in Peter's vision was no simple ask to kill and eat the animals that he saw lowered in this sheet would be to dishonor his tradition and to compromise his understanding of holiness. Those foods are explicitly forbidden to be consumed in the Bible. Even a clear command directly from the voice of God did not easily convince Peter to change his mind. God said to Peter, what, what God said to eat, to, uh, sorry, God said to eat what Peter believed to be unclean. And Peter said, no way, no way. It is against who I am and who you made me to be. It took three times before Peter finally came to understand that his vision, what it meant, and to change his mind. In the vision, God wasn't just asking him to, to enjoy some barbecue pork ribs or to eat some grilled crocodile. It's good. I've had it. 
God is asking him to change his mind about people, people he'd normally not fellowship with, people that he'd greet on the street and be nice to, sure, but he wouldn't dare eat supper in their house. Peter realizes the truth of his dream is about changing his heart because God was already doing something that was about to totally rock their world. So last week I was in Austin at the annual gathering of a clergy group uh, that I belong to. One of the members of the group told us about a sermon series that she and the pastors of her church did a few years ago. It was called uh, How I Changed My Mind. Each of the pastors picked a topic about which they changed their mind and they preached a sermon on it. And that got me thinking, what would I preach about? And I really struggled to think about uh, what I've changed my mind about because I kept coming back uh, to what I wish other people would change their minds about. I have no trouble coming up with a sermon on how Howard should change his mind, or how my senator should change his mind, how God should change God's mind, but me, beloved? It's way easier to stand with Peter on the side of trying to change the mind of those council members than to sit with Peter as God tries to change his mind. But before God uses Peter for the mission of transforming the hearts and minds of his siblings in faith, God transforms Peter first. So this leads us to ask, where, beloved, is God asking us to change? And why? Last week, my friend Taylor shared a story about a little girl in Sunday school. She was coloring a picture, working very intently. Her teacher leaned down and asked, what are you drawing? I'm drawing a picture of God, she said. Her teacher replied, but my dear, nobody knows what God looks like. The little girl responded, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> I can imagine God in a similar situation. God comes to earth and takes the form of a man named Jesus. Jesus takes a crayon, begins to draw a picture. For days and days, he labors over this image. And from time to time, someone stops to look at what Jesus has been up to. Jesus, what are you drawing? And Jesus replies, heaven. And we chuckle, shake our heads. Jesus, nobody knows what heaven looks like. Well, they will when I'm finished. Here's the deal, beloved. God is expanding God is expanding. God is expanding who we know ourselves to be as we discover more deeply how much grace we have been given, how great are the gifts that we have each been given by the Spirit to share God's love. God is expanding our hearts to make room for more family, more people, more diversity and community to care for and to allow to care for us. God is expanding God's mission out in front of us, preparing hearts and minds to receive God's love and to join God's community. God is expanding our worship as we desire to give more and more thanks, to show gratitude for all that God has done and more and more praise for how good God is. 
God is expanding God's beloved community, the kingdom of God, to include more and more and more, declaring to us, make no distinctions, by the way, make no distinctions between them and us. God is always, always widening God's arms, opening our hearts, revealing there are no limits to the grace of the Creator. Just when we think God can't, God says emphatically, ah, 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 what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now, I've been told before that God would not be as tolerant as our church. But all we have to do is point to the Bible and back to the people gathered here where lives are being shaped by God and it's evident all over the place where we turn again and again back towards Jesus who calls us each by name, where there is certifiable evidence in every person who receives the good news that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven, that indeed repentance is bringing new life. As it says in Revelation, God will wipe away every tear, every tear from their eyes. and Death will be no more. And mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things, they have passed away. And see, I am making everything new. And so we say with Peter, Well, who am I that I could hinder God? Amen. <laughs>